Welcome to episode 23 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, this is Todd Houston again. I wanted to mention the 3C Digital Media Network, which is our new company that we've developed here. And I wanted to just encourage you to sign up on the site. All it takes is just putting your email in, and that way you can stay in touch with us and we can stay in touch with you. And you will hear and get information about all of our new uh, blogs that might come out. Uh, you'll hear about our new webinars and courses. And so it's a way just to stay in touch. And that's important these days, staying in touch. So if you don't mind, go over to 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up. And now, back to the interview. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mara Bernson. Mara holds her B.A. in Deaf Education from Fontbonne University and her M.A. in Early Childhood Education from the University of Texas, San Antonio. Mara is also a listening and spoken language specialist, certified auditory verbal therapist. As executive director at Listen and Talk in Seattle, Washington, she fosters relationships while providing leadership and oversight of operations and staff that ensure the delivery of quality listening and spoken language services. During her career, Mara has been involved in local, state, and national efforts to build sustainable systems that optimize opportunities for families and their children who are deaf and hard of hearing. Here's my conversation with Mara. So Mara, welcome to the podcast. Give me a little bit more about your background and how you got into this little world. This little world. Um, it, it was actually quite accidental. Um, I was 15 years old and like many teenagers, um, just exploring what opportunities might be out there and had a high school field trip to St. Louis, which was about an hour away from my very small hometown in Illinois. And um, we went to this small college um, called Fontbonne and um, now known as Fontbonne University. And my Tour, my group's tour guide was a deaf education major. And at a point in the tour of the campus, um, I asked a question that opened the door for her to talk about her major. I, I didn't realize it would do that. And I was fascinated. Um, just had never heard of deaf education. Um, had never met a person who was deaf or hard of hearing. And just, again, I was, I was just drawn to it. Um, so my, my mother in particular will probably tell you that 
the day I came home from that field trip, she absolutely knew that that's what I was going to do. And I still floated back and forth for at least a year or so and just kept coming back to this idea of blending science and education and um and I, I loved working with children. So all of these things came together and um, I, I started my under degree, undergraduate degree at Fompon in, um, and became a teacher of the deaf. So that was the, the first step. Then um, my first job was at Sunshine Cottage in San Antonio, Texas. And um, Jackie Patton, whom I think you you know, uh, was the audiologist on the team and right across the hall. And um, at a point in time, somebody took me by the arm and said, if Jackie tells you that that rock on the ground can hear this frequency, just know that she's right. <laughs> so I learned so much at um, at Fompon and then went to Sunshine Cottage and learned so much more uh, about the auditory potential um, that children who are deaf or heard of hearing have. Um, then that led me to explore the the um, at the time it was certification as an auditory verbal therapist and and again just drawn into that blend of of art and science and family and children and and building those communication skills and um and i've been at it ever since so been at it a while so how long were you in texas um i was in texas about six years so i started teaching um in 1990 you can probably see a little gray hair and a few wrinkles here but i started teaching um the year that that cochlear implants were fda approved for children um just uh fortunate timing um the training at um at fompon there were many, many children at St. Joe's Institute where I did my student teaching who were there because they had recently received a cochlear implant and, and, um, and St. Joe's Institute was, was part of that data collection and that, that review process um, that goes along with the FDA approval. So um, it, it was a, a great time to be a student. And, um, and then again, I, as I mentioned, I, I moved to, um, from the Midwest to, to San Antonio and I was at, at Sunshine for about six years. Well, I, I love Sunshine Cottage. I've, I've only visited there a couple of times, but certainly the, they have that reputation of just being an excellent place, an excellent school. Uh, of course, all the materials they've developed over the years, we all use, I use their stuff. I just, in fact, placed a big order to get more stuff in um, <laughs> through the university. So uh, it's, it was just, you know, probably a perfect training ground for you uh, as, as someone mm -hmm. coming out of college and, and being able to go there. Yeah. And um, I, I have to also call out um, Dr. Wally Bruce. Um, he was the director and, um, and Dr. Bruce had a way of helping 
helping you discover the answer. Um, I, I think it would have been very easy for him to say, do it this way. And, um, and he would meet with you and, and had high expectations. I mean, detailed lesson plans, um, the ability to collect data, um, very, very, very careful um, tracking of progress and, and what that meant. I mean, I, I think without knowing it at the time, Dr. Bruce exemplified diagnostic teaching, um, one of those cornerstones of, of um, listening and spoken language practice that, that you, you needed to know why you were doing what you were doing and how it was helping that child and that family grow. But he, he just had this way of um, engaging you in a conversation about what you were doing that helped you discover your next step. And, and I will be forever grateful to, to him um, for, for being one of my first mentors. It reminds me of that, that quote in terms of, you really don't learn until you reflect on what you're learning. And so it's, it's nice that he sort of, uh, sort of integrated all of that together and, and the experience that he had for you guys there, uh, of really figuring out why exactly you're doing these things and, and what does it mean and how does it help the kid that you're working with? Yeah. And I think another thing he did, Todd, is he, um, he he gave you the space to find ways to do things or find new things that if you could explain the why and what you anticipated the impact to be, you you had room to try these things. They they definitely had to be founded in in um, now we would say evidence that that there would be an evidence base um, for for why you would do this. But but he would give you the room to explore and um, and apply something you had learned in the work you were doing at Sunshine. And, um, and I think that that led to the direction I went with my master's degree, because I, I feel a little bit like an odd duck these days, <laughs> because my undergrad degree is um, in deaf education, not my master's degree. And, um, and I'm still uh, very grateful that I went that path, that I had four years to absorb um, the information and, and the experience with, with working with, with young children in particular who are, who are deaf or hard of hearing. But for my master's degree, um, Dr. Bruce actually encouraged me not to pursue a master's in deaf education. And that was because of the strength of the program at Fonbon. Um, he, um, he said, you know, take what you know about teaching kids who are deaf or hard of hearing, working with their families and add to that, don't repeat it. And, and so um, uh, a colleague of mine, um, Judy Odendahl, um, and I both, um, she was a little bit uh, ahead of me, but we pursued an early childhood focus um, in our master's degree, which really transformed um, what I understood about how children learn and, and how um, I could help them learn when I was in my role as a classroom teacher. And, and again, just really aligned with those listening and spoken language principles of, of following a developmental approach. 
And so how did you go from Texas to Seattle? How was that? What, what were the steps in between? Another accident. Uh. <laughs> another accident. <laughs> yeah, another accident. Um, this this postcard landed um, in our mailbox. I, I'm sure that at the time, um, Star Leonard Fleckman, who is the founding director at Listen and Talk, um, used a, a mailing list from A.G. Bell or something. But um it, it talked about Listen and Talk in Seattle and um, had a Tucker Maxson return address. And at the time, um, in, in that era, Tucker Maxson was publishing quite a bit. And, um, and so I thought that they were um, perhaps writing a new curriculum. And I had just finished my master's, um, completed my my auditory verbal certification, and thought this is this is a new project. Like I, I've I've got time on my hands now. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to do after I finished grad school while I was working full time. So I, I sent a letter and. Um, and very quickly learned that it wasn't a it wasn't a book it wasn't a curriculum it was a program that was trying to open so um, that that's how I met uh, Star Leonard Fleckman and um, made that transition from from some Sunshine Cottage to uh, listen and talk in Seattle. And describe describe that experience. It was a new program. You guys were starting from scratch, right? Oh. Um, definitely starting from scratch. Um, so it was uh, Star's um, private practice, and and that was based in her home, and it moved from that private practice and in, into a program. Um, and I. I really don't think I had any idea <laughs> what I was getting into. Um, I, I, I don't know if I, the, you know, foolishness of, of youth or something like that. But, um, but I, when, when I heard star and the family she worked with and eventually met um, a couple of their board members, it reminded me of sunshine cottage quite honestly. And, and when I made the decision to leave Sunshine Cottage, that's what I told um, Blaine Troutwine and Carolyn Walthall, the, the leadership there, that the team in Seattle was trying to do what Dela White did in San Antonio, which was establish um, a strong program that gave children and their families the opportunity to connect and learn through listening and spoken language. And um, Seattle didn't have that. And, and I think at the time, you know, it, Microsoft was was everywhere. And, and so we all um, or I naively thought that that just Seattle was essentially cutting edge across across all things and um, arrived and learned that in terms of, of opportunities for children who were deaf or hard of hearing, it was very limited opportunities for listening and spoken language. So I, it, you know, I left a team of probably close to 50 people total and came to a, a team of two and um we had we had our building. Um, we I we didn't have um, computers, and we had one computer in the office. Is my memory, 
um, I, I mean, it was starting from scratch. And so uh, Kim Hamron, who joined a year, joined our team a year later, um, we would we would stop by Kinko's on the way to work because um, we didn't have a photocopier in in the building. And so, so our, our business manager one year said, um, you know, oh, it's getting time for Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? And I am not an early bird by nature. So getting up at six in the morning to be first in line at Kinko's was, it was hard for me. And I'm like, I want a photocopier, George. We want a photocopier. And um, right after, right as we got ready for Christmas, we got our, our first photocopier at Listen and Talk. So, um, so it was definitely an adjustment, um, you know, that, that just, uh, we, we, I, Star and I both relied on the colleagues that we had in other places and, um, just networked and, and, um, did everything to make sure we we were were following solid practices and building um, a program that that would stay strong and um, and so we are approaching our the start of our twenty fifth year um, this coming September wow, twenty five years <laughs> with the <a> photocopier <laughs> hopefully not the same photocopier um, so how many did you start with in that, that first year or so. Um, how, how many families did we? Yeah, um, we were providing auditory verbal therapy to 13 children and their families. Um, the following year, um, we were in a, a, I remember it at the time being, a, I'm not sure what, what adjective to use, but we had auditory verbal therapy and we had classrooms. And my memory is, is that it wasn't very common for those two um, types of settings to exist within the same agency. And um, so th- there were a lot of conversations with our friends at was Auditory Verbal International at the time going, what are you guys doing with classrooms? And then there were lots of conversations with our friends at AG Bell about what are you guys doing with auditory verbal therapy? And um, I'm, I think Star and everyone at Listen and Talk is, um, remains very proud of the fact that we were able to honor the principles of, of both of those settings so that children had those children and families had those opportunities um, that that we were able to take um, take both of those approaches settings um, values and and support more more children um, but so we started with 13. I think the following year we were eking close to 20 and we were doing a strategic plan and we had to project out our growth and enrollment. And at the time it, it was just mind boggling, at least to me, that we could possibly anticipate serving 25, 30 35. Um, I, I think when we looked at the five-year plan, we might have eked our way up to um, 40 children. And I just could not imagine how we 
we're going to meet that many children. Um, last year, we served in total between our birth to three program, classroom program, um, lithotherapy, and outreach. We served over 200 children. Wow. That's, that's, that's huge. That's great. Yeah. No, so it's, um, it, it's very humbling to, to meet families and um, have them, them trust us to, to kind of take them on this journey and, and help their children um, master communication, achieve things that, that some people don't think is possible. So, yeah. Well, you know, we've, we've both been doing this for, for at least a few years. <laughs> what, what do you think is the biggest um, positive outcome that you're seeing right now? And then I'm going to go the opposite way. And what's the biggest thing we need to work on? Yeah. So um, in, in Seattle, there, there were, there were a, couple of um, pivotal events that, that I think changed the, the dynamic um, is, is how I'll describe it. Um, Washington is actually still a state that doesn't have a newborn hearing screening mandate. It's, it's voluntary. Um, we hit great numbers with that. Um, I think everyone is still um, um challenged by loss to follow up, but, but what that effort to establish newborn hearing screening in Washington state resulted in, and, and I will forever give credit to the families is that no matter which communication approach your family had adopted, your family was following, there was something we had in common and that was ensuring that that children's hearing levels were identified early and families were connected to the resources that aligned with their desired outcomes. And, um, and so the professionals um, followed the families lead and said, you know, we're, we're not, we're this, this, situation, establishing this reality is brought people together and um, opened the doors for conversations on not only what our practices were, but how do we, how do we evaluate our systems so that families have accurate information, have supports in place to, to access those services and realize the outcomes that are possible for, for children and families. Um, and we have been able to continue that um, for the last 20, 23 years um, since, since that event. It's, it, there are times where it's not easy. There are times where it's not comfortable, but we're able to bring professionals and families around the table to improve systems so that all children who are deaf or hard of hearing benefit, um, not only children using one approach or the other. So um, there are times where I think that's happening 
in several places, many places, and other times where I, I think that that Washington and the Seattle area um, is still perhaps a little unique. But that I would challenge professionals um, anywhere to to keep in mind that systems change can benefit all children, each child who is deaf or hard of hearing, and that in addition to remaining committed to our professional values and um, maintaining the uh, integrity of, of the supports that we offer, stay committed to making sure those systems support family access. And I have read about what you guys have done there in the state of Washington, and I think it's incredible to be able to keep everyone, for the most part, of you know, on the same page with the focus on families and making sure all families have options available to them. Um, so that's, that's in a sense, you know, one of the models around the country that I think other states have looked at. And so that that's a very big positive. Where, yeah. either in Washington or just nationally or more in general, where do we, where do we go from here? What do you think we need to do as little clinicians um, focused on kids with hearing loss? What are we still missing? I, I'm not sure that, you know, that, that missing is, is the, um, the term I would use, but, but I do think that as we meet children with additional special needs, um, that, that, that's an area that I personally, our team at Listen and Talk is, is constantly thinking about and looking for what, what are the right resources, the right models, the, the, the way to support these children and, and their unique needs. Um, so, so there are children that come to us either with known or unknown additional challenges. And as we, as we learn about them, how do we adjust what we're doing to support that family, to um, support that child? So I, I think that, that that's, that's an, a conversation that just needs to continue and will, will evolve as we, we learn more. Um, and and so that that's one piece. And then another piece, you know, I would be um, be remiss without acknowledging just the the equity um, conversations, the diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, it in our experience, it's it's extremely difficult to find um, qualified providers that speak more than one language. Um, we work with language interpreters. So at Listen and Talk, among our 200 plus families, they speak 26 different home languages. And um, trying to imagine how we as adults learn new information and then understanding that and thinking, how are we learning that new information when we're having to navigate those conversations through an interpreter? And just what do, what do we do to support that? How do we plan for that? Um, so so that, that 
children in their families aren't limited. So, so those are, are two, I, I think, topics that are, are, um, are big for us at, at present. And I think those, yeah, if I had to list, you know, top two or three, I would have them right there with you. I think the yeah. you know, issues around those kids that have additional needs, we still, we all struggle with that, depending on what that additional diagnosis might be. And, and then, you know, the diversity, you know, income inequality, getting services mm-hmm. to families that are lower socioeconomic uh, status, right. uh, finding those clinicians that have that are also diverse. I know just from a perspective of being a faculty member and trying to recruit students to come in and be trained, it's extremely hard for us to find um, a, a sort of a diverse cohort of students. Uh, and, and Akron is considered sort of an urban area, you know, and, uh, and we just still struggle with trying to get students with, you know, more varied backgrounds. And uh, it's, it's a challenge, you know, across the country. And, and then beyond that, in the Lissell community, we need to work even more to make sure those things are happening. And so at, at this point, uh, what, would, what advice would you give someone who is, is maybe starting out, who's interested in maybe becoming LISL certified? What advice would you give them today? I, I think just um, understanding, as Jace Wolf says, not what's possible, what's, what's probable. Um, I, I think that really having a solid understanding of that um, and and setting that um, that bar high in terms of your expectation. I think being reflective. Um, so some of the things that that come to mind for me really have nothing to do with def- our education or or um, or speech speech and um, hearing science. It, it's that that active, reflective nature so that we are constantly reminded and mindful of the fact that this isn't what I'm, what I'm doing. It's, it's what that family's doing and how that family impacts that child. Um, So, you know, naively, I, I, I am a hundred percent sure that when I graduated from college and got my first teaching position, I was thinking about me. I was thinking about what I was doing and the importance of what I was doing and really didn't have that lens on the, the power of the family. Um, so I, I would encourage people, new professionals to really think about that and to explore that and to, to be mindful and reflective of their practices and relationship of um, igniting that confidence in parents. Um, 
after all these years, I, 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 and as much information as families come to us with because of the internet, because of, of materials and access to information and other people, it, you still hear unbelievably empowered parents saying, but you know more than I do, or in some way, shape or form. And, and I'm like, I might know more about this, but you are the reason your child is, is progressing and will reach these goals and will, will find that fulfilling life. So, um, and, and I know when I started out, I, I didn't really have a sense of that, but, and, and then I would also say um, somewhat quickly, I, I never thought I would be in quote unquote administration. Um, and so I, I do um, when teachers are sick and there's a chance to go back into the classroom. I, I love it um, when a family um, needs someone in a, a session, you know, there, there needs to be someone to cover sessions or, or to, um, to, to serve and support a family for a, a longer stretch. You know, I'm, I'm the first one to, to justify or rationalize why I might be the best person for that job. Um, but I, I think that um, regardless of your title, we can all influence systems that ultimately support families. So, don't underestimate the impact you as a professional can have on raising awareness of a gap, of um, sharing an idea that can increase access, and um, and really becoming seeing yourself as a leader, no matter what your title is. I think those are great words of wisdom. And I, I, I think, yeah, I think those are wonderful. I think the, the idea of always seeing yourself as capable of having an impact and being a leader and recognizing that and being family-centered and, and parent-centered is, is very good advice uh, for, for anyone, but especially those that are just starting out more worried about maybe did I do this right or do that right than just being authentic and and bonding with the family and really trying to understand what the family needs and then how you can help them get to that next level. And I'll add one more thing really quickly, Todd. Um, I think when I first started to work with, um, with families and children, I thought I always had to have the answer right when the question was asked. And, and I, I think it's important for all of us in all parts of our life when we're posed with a question to, to recognize it, but to give yourself the space to explore, um, to network, to gather more information um, so that, that a, a full answer, a, a full, um, clear, clear information can be shared with somebody instead of thinking they ask this question, I'm, I'm the therapist, I'm the teacher, I'm the coach, I, I should be able to answer this right now. Right. This actually came up not long ago. I was working with my grad students and a parent uh, at Akron Children's Hospital. Uh, 
asked a question about some very rare, very, very rare uh, diagnosis. And I, I couldn't remember. I just couldn't remember the answer. And, uh, and it's like, I don't know. I had to say, I, I just, I don't know, but I will look that up for you and I'll, I'll be back in touch. And, and we talk, I talked about that to the grad students after the session was over. I said, you know, it's, you know, it's okay to do that. I mean, I would rather, you know, say something along those lines than tell them misinformation, just share misinformation that is not accurate. And then you have to go back and correct it. You know, it's okay that you don't know everything. No one knows everything. And you're going to get asked questions. You're going to be put in that spot. And if you don't know the answer, don't make something up. Just say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I will go find out. I will learn and I will be back in touch. And that's what the families want. You know, they want someone who can, they can trust. Mm-hmm. They don't want someone just to make stuff up and just to satisfy them in that moment. They want them to be themselves and share what they know. And if they don't know, find the information for them or help them find it, whatever right. the case may be. Right. Well, it's it's been absolutely wonderful catching up with you today. Yes. And how can someone get in touch with you if they would like to reach out? Yeah, um, we're, you know, phone, email, um, website. So uh, I, I probably should have had a slide that you could show <laughs> in the background right now. But um, uh, www.listentalk.org is Listen and Talk's uh, website. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram, all of the, the uh, social media reach. And then um, my email address is I'm, I'm happy to connect with, with anyone. Um, M-A-U-R-A-B as in boy at listentalk.org is a great place to start and figure out next steps. But we, we've got an amazing team, so don't be surprised if you reach out to me and I connect you to someone else. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I am um, unbelievably grateful for the the team that we have here. Well, thank you for sharing all your wisdom today. Absolutely, I really appreciate Maura being with us today and having such a great conversation. I have been such a fan of listen and talk for many many years and uh and a fan of Morris for what she's done over the years as well and so if you have questions or want to learn more about their program reach out and visit the website um i'm sure they would love to hear from you and and uh share more information about what they're doing and Thank you for listening, and if you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. That always helps us to attract new listeners and to grow the podcast, and we want to really spread the news about listening and spoken language and what it takes for families and professionals to make that happen for children with hearing loss. So please share this podcast with at least five people. Uh, to get that listenership up, we want to continue to grow. So that's my call to action for you. Share this podcast with five people. Let them know that we exist and that this is a place that they need to listen uh, to in order to 
to hear more information and connect with individuals who are in this LISL community. And with that, thank you for listening again, and uh, I'll see you in two weeks. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. Oh,